problem of empathy. Um, in other words, what what is really important to you as a man is not as important to your wife as a woman. Now, you know, sure, she likes it, but she doesn't love it. And and so I began thinking, okay, how does this work in practice? Um, and so what I counseling a lot of frustration. People were terribly frustrated with the fact that whatever they expected to get. And when they were married, they weren't getting. Uh, and and they were asking for something that the other person didn't think was that important. And uh, so I started training people to meet the emotional needs of the spouse that they had. Well, welcome to another episode of the Pastors Roundtable Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Latham. This is the podcast where we help rising leaders thrive in life and in ministry. Today's a really special episode for me because I've got my wife, Sarah, joining us today, and we're talking about a book, His Needs, Her Needs, written by Dr. Harley, and this is a book that uh, we used early in our marriage. In fact, even before we got married, we, married, we started reading it, and uh, we've picked it back up multiple times throughout our marriage, and so we're really excited about this interview. It's packed full of practical information that's going to help you in your marriage. So let me introduce you guys to Dr. Harley. He is a nationally acclaimed clinical psychologist, a marriage counselor still to this day, and he's the best-selling author of multiple books, including His Needs, Her Needs, Surviving an Affair, He Wins, She Wins, and has a website, marriagebuilders.com, which is just full of practical resources to help you in your marriage. I want to encourage you guys to get a hold of this book. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website. And please listen to this episode because it is packed full of practical information for you today. Dr. Harley, we're super excited for you to be on the podcast today. We'd love for you to just, for those that aren't familiar with you, just to tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit how you got to where you are today. Well, um, I started out in anticipating that I would become a pastor of a church. And um, so I had a philosophy major in college and I was enrolled in seminary after I graduated. But I also had a major in mathematics, and uh, so I had a double major. And um, two weeks before my seminary experience was to begin, and I had just been married, um, Joyce let me know that that was not the direction that she wanted to go. And um, so I said, okay, uh, that was my plan, but I guess I can change plans. Let's do it together. Let's plan together. And so for two years, um, I enrolled at the University of California without a major. I had graduated, but no graduate degree in mind. And I developed um, some material. I did some research, published some articles on artificial intelligence. And... Um, that got the attention of the psychology department, and they wanted me to get a PhD in psychology. They 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 eliminated all the requirements, uh, and they enrolled me without a master's degree, without a single course in psychology, and I got my PhD in psychology. So 
uh, with artificial intelligence as my background, <laughs> I'm a psychologist. Um, in the very early years, I was a teacher, so I taught psychology. Um, and um, but my basic interest was clinical psychology. So I was interested in counseling. I was interested in therapy, and uh, the top interest in that field was marriage. And I became aware of the fact that by helping people with their marriages, I was able to help people with their mental health. So a couple would come, a person would come into me with mental health problems, terrible depression, anxiety problems. Um, and um, many of these people were married and very unhappy in their marriage. And what I found is that if I could help them solve their marital problems, their mental health problems were solved along with it. And this was especially true for women. So little by little, I developed more and more of an interest in, in marriage. And um, I, uh, in, in the preface to my book, His Needs, Her Needs, I talk about the fact that I became very disillusioned with what was available in marriage therapy, developed my own approach. It became very successful. Eventually I started writing books about it. The book that you have is the first one I wrote. So the basic idea is that I know how to save marriages. I, I know how to do it. Uh, people have to do what I tell them to do, of course. Uh, motivation is one of the biggest problems in, in marriage counseling. I mean, you can't if you can't get people to do what you tell them to do, there's no hope. I mean, you know, they're not going to succeed. But if they do it, what you tell them to do, and you know what to tell them, you know what works, you get, you get a lot of success all over the place. And that's what I've experienced throughout life. And Joyce and I are happily married. We've been married for 60 years, celebrated our 60th anniversary this year. And uh, Joyce is the love of my life. Um, it would have been kind of fun to have her along. As long as you had your wife, it would have been fun to have Joyce with me. And then we, she could have, <clears throat> she could have corrected any of my mistakes along the way. So good. So good. <laughs> well, in the book, you talk about 10 different needs that uh, are kind of bubbling up to the top uh, for uh, guys and the ladies. So I'd love to kind of hear where'd you get these 10 Did you just kind of pull them out of a hat or uh, kind of, I'm sure there's, there's, I mean, a lot of things that you could have talked about, but how'd you get down to these 10 needs uh, for guys and the ladies? Well, my, my theory, uh, after I discovered that other theories weren't working out so well, I started with a new theory that was based on the idea that Romantic love is a huge factor in marriages. Uh, if you are in love, marriages tend to be wonderful. And if you're not in love, marriages tend to be disappointing. And so I spent a lot of time doing research on the topic of romantic love. What is romantic love? How do you develop it? How, do, how does it start? How does it end? And um, of course, I had students that I was working with in college that were falling in and out of love all the time. So I had, I had a lot of, of, of people in front of me that I could study. And how is this happening? What are, why are they, how are they experiencing this and what are they experiencing? And um, so I developed the concept of the love bank. 
And I said that basically whenever you do something to make people feel good, you make love bank deposits. Whenever you do something to make people feel bad, you make love bank withdrawals in their account. And um, I came up with the idea that romantic love may be nothing more than the association of really good feelings with a certain person. Now, you might look back and say, well, that's kind of common sense. But nobody was doing that at the time that I came up with this idea. They were all talking about communication. They weren't talking about romantic love at all. And um, so among the things I discovered was what I call um, emotional needs. And I came up with that term. I called it that. Um, Emotional need is anything that makes you feel really good when somebody meets that need and makes you feel frustrated when it's not being met. And um, so I didn't know what they were. I didn't know what they would be. And so I just asked a lot of people that I, by this time I was counseling, I was doing marriage counseling, and I would ask people that were married, what could your spouse do that would make you feel the best? You know, in other words, what would your spouse do that would make the most love bank deposits? And, um, and I would ask my students that too. When you're out on a date, what makes you decide that this guy might work? This guy might be the one. What is he doing? You know, and um, so after a period of time, um, I came up with 10 categories that pretty well covered the waterfront of the things that were the most important in a relationship. And um, so instead of asking people, what could your spouse do? I gave them a questionnaire that included the top, those 10. That made it easier for them to come up with it. And then I asked them to prioritize it. Okay, what, which, which are the most important? Here are 10 things that if your spouse did it for you, you'd feel better, you'd feel good. Yeah, yeah, they're all good. Um, but which are the most important? Which make you the happiest when, when your spouse meets them? And what I discovered, uh, which I had not anticipated actually, was that uh, on average, men would identify five of them as their top five. And women would identify the other five as their top five. And I began to recognize, oh, I begin to see the problem here that um, you have a problem of empathy. Um, in other words, what, what is really important to you as a man is not as important to your wife as a woman. Now, you know, sure, she likes it, but she doesn't love it. And, and so I began thinking, okay, how does this work in practice? Um, and so what I counseling, a lot of frustration, people were terribly frustrated with the fact that whatever they expected to get and when they were married, they weren't getting, uh, and, and they were asking for something that the other person didn't think was that important. And, uh, so I started training people to meet the emotional needs of the spouse that they had. Now, my questionnaire does not say you've got to have these five. If you're a man, you got to have these five emotional needs. I start with every couple afresh. They have to tell me what their emotional needs are. And maybe they're not at all typical. Maybe they're very different. Maybe she wants, she wants what 
I expected men to want. He wants what I expected. I don't care. All I know is that the questionnaire needs to tell me what each spouse can do for the other one that makes the most love bank deposits. And what do you think happened? All the couples I was counseling, they fell in love. I had a little test that would measure whether or not they were in love with each other. I still use it today. Call it the love bank inventory. It's just 20 items. <clears throat> very, It's a very good test. If you tell the truth, it, it, it identifies a person in love uh, very easily. And all the couples that I was counseling, they end up being in love with each other. And I was a success. And I decided to give up my teaching and go into counseling full time. And I do that to this day, to this day. Today, I am still counseling. This day, this day that we're talking, I am counseling people. So the basic idea is I do it. I've done it all my life. I use the same method. It's very successful. That's amazing. Dr. Harley, do you think that our emotional needs change over time or do they tend to stay the same? Yeah, it does. They do change. And so uh, it's a good idea to fill out the questionnaire every once in a while to see what new emotional needs have popped up. Uh, this is especially true after children arrive. Um, and um, so I have some people tell me that they fill out the emotional needs questionnaire every year. Uh, it's downloadable free of charge on my Marriage Builders website. Go, in, go into questionnaires. You'll see the emotional needs questionnaire. Fill it out every year and just give each other some ideas as to how your emotional needs might be changing. And um, so, you know, it is true. Uh, we are all moving targets. Uh, we're not we're not the same. Um, and so the important thing to understand is that um, if your spouse says that they need more of one thing this year than they did last year, I suggest that you get to work and learn how to do whatever that is. <laughs> All right. So for those that uh, haven't read the book yet, again, I want to highly recommend you guys go get the book immediately. But uh, could you give us just a couple of those uh, kind of the top of the mind there uh, of the needs that you feel like are kind of the, the top top few? Okay. And, then, and again, caveat. Not everybody, not everybody follows this plan uh, exactly. Uh, they have differences, um, but on average, men have sexual fulfillment as their number one emotional need. Uh, right after that comes recreational companionship. Um, physical attractiveness is third. The fourth is usually um, um, admiration and um, and uh, the fifth is, man, every once in a while that happens to me. Domestic support. And you know why I forget? You know why I forgot that? It's because it's not as important anymore. Mm. Uh, when I came up with this sort of thing, it was among the top five for men, domestic support. But it isn't so much anymore. Uh, as a matter of fact, in most families that have dual career families, domestic support is shared. And so as an emotional need for men, uh, that's why I forgot it. Okay, for women, I can remember those because they're, they remain the same. Mm. Um, the first is usually affection and intimate conversation. I would put those first and second almost, they're tied for first. 
affection, intimate conversation, go together, what they want in a husband who can talk to them in a way that communicates the husband's care for her. And, um, and so I describe that in my book. You'll, you'll notice that there are two chapters back to back in His Needs, Her Needs. Affection, intimate conversation. You learn to do that. That's probably the most important thing your wife will need from you, those two things. The third is honesty and openness. Again, most women will tell you, well, you know, you got to have the honesty and openness mixed in with affection, intimate conversation. So maybe it's tied for first. Maybe maybe honesty and openness is tied for first. Uh, and then you have financial support. And a woman would say, yeah, I mean, really, he needs to support me. I don't I don't think I could be married to somebody who doesn't have a job, you know. So maybe we have to have those four tied for first. Um <laughs> uh, and and then we and then we talk about family commitment. Oh my gosh, family commitment. I couldn't live with a man that wasn't committed to his family if he wasn't a good father. So we have five that are tied for first. Okay? <laughs> we want we want them all. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And as a matter of fact, many women will say, well, what else is on your list? I, I think I want those two. So um all right. So, so, <laughs> so how do we, how do we say, okay, you've read the book. I've read the book. How do we help ourselves protect ourselves from having all these expectations that, okay, you know what they are. You read the book. Now you just, you're just going to meet all my needs now. So how do we protect ourselves? From having well, those expectations? there are different people in this world. There are some people that can grab something and run with it. You know, they see my book, they read the book, oh my gosh, I can do this. And off they go. And these are usually people that are physically fit, they they have exercise programs and they eat well and they're very highly disciplined. Okay. And then you have the people that are not quite so disciplined. Uh, they need a little bit of help. And so when your spouse says, you know, these are this, what Dr. Harley says is true. This is what I need. You, if you do this, you're going to make me happy. And then, and then the guy says, yeah, but I, I'm not, I don't know. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm made for that. I don't think I'm the right guy for that. Then you might need a coach. You might need somebody to help you get through this. Now, coaches don't necessarily cost anything. Sometimes you can find a coach with in your church. You know, you can have a, you can have a lot of the, churches that I have worked with have marriage programs in them and they they train people they have I, I have a, um, a video uh, series that you may have seen um, uh, six session series that gets people started on the process of, of of learning how to meet your spouse's emotional needs and then generally a church will follow that up with um, additional classes that that have to do with training. But my feeling is that meeting an emotional need is a skill set, and anybody can learn to do it. Um, so when somebody tells me I'm just not good at this kind of thing, you know, I would tell them that I'm not good at running marathons either, but I could probably do it if it was that important. And, and the idea is that anything in life that's worth doing can probably be trained how to do it. So you can learn how to do it. So I, I do a lot of training. I think of, it's not marriage counseling, it's marriage education. Mm. 
It's marriage education. You're, you're teaching people how to be married, how to be a good spouse. So when you're a husband, you need to know how to be affectionate. You need to know how to engage in intimate conversation. You need to know how to be honest and open. You need to know how to be a good father, know how to be a good family man. You need to know how to earn a living. You know, these are things that you need to learn to do and everybody can learn to do it. And when you learn to do it, you make your, you make your wife very happy and she's in love with you. Just that simple. That's very true. Now, as couples have children and grow their families, how does that change the way that spouses meet each other's emotional needs or even as the children grow older? Um, I think it affects women and men in, in different ways. Um, many of the men that I counsel find that having their first child creates a crisis for them. They're not emotionally prepared for having a child interrupt their golf game or their their uh, friends, uh, the freedom that they had before. Now they get up in the middle of the night. They don't like that. And um, I've counseled a lot of men that just um, check out. And, and of course, it infuriates their wives. And the second most common year of divorce, first, first year of marriage is the first most common year of divorce. But the second most common year is the year of the first child. And it's largely because men check out. Mm. So when it comes to being a good father, children have a, an effect on men that can often be negative. And instead of being a good father, he checks out. Women, on the other hand, develop an attitude that this baby that I've got is the most important thing in life, and they come to ignore their husbands. And uh, that is a tragic mistake, because what she needs to be able to do is bring her husband in on the business of raising this child. And to ignore him and ignore his emotional needs, many women will tell a husband, you know, we don't have time for each other anymore. Uh, because we now have children, they need us more than we need each other. And, and that is uh, simply wrong. So where women become more committed to their children, men become less committed to their children. I th that, that to me, and so my, my book, His Needs, Her Needs for Parents, is designed to help a husband and wife understand that the best thing you can do for your children is to love each other as a husband and wife and to be each other's companion, be each other's partner, live life with each other and, and not abandon each other at the time that your children are being raised. So that's, that's my take on children and the effect that it has on marriage. By the way, the more children you have, the higher risk for divorce. Isn't that a tragic statistic? Wow. What a tragic, what a tragic statistic. The more children you have, the more likely it is that the divorce will fail. Do you, 
unpack that a little bit. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, is it just the more demand, the more separation between the two? Yeah, yeah. Basically, the, the, the my attitude is um, I, I have a basic rule called the policy of undivided attention. Uh, and during that, the policy says uh, spend a minimum of 15 hours a week giving your spouse your undivided attention. No friends, no children. You're alone. You're dating 15 hours a week. Okay. Now, when you're before you're married, you wouldn't have gotten married if you didn't spend 15 hours a week. Um, and, and during the first year of marriage, you have a great marriage because you're spending a lot of time 15 hours a week. What do you do during the 15 hours a week? It's affection, intimate conversation, recreational companionship, sexual fulfillment. We talked about the needs of women, intimate conversation and affection. And then the needs of men, the top two are sexual fulfillment, recreational companionship. You put those together in a date. That's what you do when you date. 15 hours a week of that. Now, what happens after you have four kids? It gets harder and harder and harder to spend 15 hours a week giving each other undivided attention. And so my argument is, well, you can do it. You can do it with 10 kids. I'm counseling uh, a couple right now that have nine children, and they are spending 15 hours a week giving each other undivided attention because that is my requirement for my counseling with them. They have to do that. And little by little, the marriage is going to come together. They're ready to get a divorce with nine children. And he's a pastor of a church. Okay. So 15 hours a week of undivided attention. And they're both telling me, we just don't have the time for that. I said, yes, you do. You have the time. It's just, you're doing something else during that time that I want you to spend with each other. And so we have two weeks now, two weeks together where they have done that. And um, they uh, have never done so much dancing in their life. So, <laughs> so here you go. <laughs> All right. So you talked about. So anyway, you talked about how those the needs. It's not always the same people need the same one, the same level, and maybe even change over time. So, do you have some practical tips for us on how to communicate to your spouse? what your needs are, and even how to meet those needs? Well, first of all, I think the emotional needs questionnaire helps you do that. Um, basically, not only does it tell your spouse what your emotional needs are, but it also, there's a section in there that tells your spouse how he or she could meet those needs. It offers suggestions on how that could be done. Now, of course, all the books in all the chapters in my book, His Needs, Her Needs, go to more explanation there. And then the workbook, Five Steps to Romantic Love, actually follows that up with, all right, are you doing it? But the basic the basic problem of communication is how do I tell my spouse that they need to step their program up a bit? <laughs> they need to do better. And I think that by filling the questionnaire out occasionally it helps you do that. Um, nobody likes to be told that they're not doing a good job. And so you have to be sure that when you're communicating, I, I need, I need more than I'm getting from you. It has to be done tactfully. 
along with you are doing a lot of things that I do like. Don't get me wrong. I think you're you're a great guy and all. But here is something I'd like you to do that's more. Now, the, the common complaint is, look, I'm already doing all these things for you. Isn't that enough? And uh, apparently the answer is no, it's not enough. There's more, <laughs> you know, and um, will there ever be an end to all of this? And the answer is not really. Uh, if you care about somebody, you're always going to be alert to something that they might need more. And um, if you're in love with that person, it makes it easy to do. So mutual love makes the whole business of meeting emotional needs much more instinctive and much easier to achieve. Absolutely. Now, for those of us who are balancing marriage, family, ministry, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of times pastors who are so committed to their ministry and their work that they can sometimes neglect their spouse. So what kind of tips can you give us for that whole dance of balancing that marriage, family, ministry, work life? Well, I think that, again, my policy of undivided attention is a very good rule, and uh, it applies to people in ministry as well as people that are not in ministry. And that is give your spouse your undivided attention a minimum of 15 hours a week, scheduling the time in advance, making sure that you are meeting each other's needs for affection, intimate conversation, recreational companionship, and sexual fulfillment when you're out on dates. Uh, I've written a series called Dating the One You Married that's in the articles section of the um, website that describes the obstacles to doing all of that. And uh, the greatest obstacle is not ministry. The greatest obstacle is not liking your spouse. Mm. And so I go to a great deal of trouble to show people that don't like each other how to start scheduling time to meet each other's emotional needs. Because if you don't like your spouse, you're, you're headed for a negative feedback loop where you're, you're going to spend less and less time together. You're going to do more and more arguing. Your, your relationship is going to fall apart. Somehow or other, you got to turn the corner. You got to reverse that, that, that pattern of behavior. And so in that series that I have, Dating the One You Married focuses on couples that have not been dating and have, have strayed far apart from each other. And uh, even they can learn how to do it. Now, if you're still liking each other, of course, then it's just a matter of doing it. It's just a matter of putting it in your schedule. And, and if you have a, a, a meeting that on a certain night, you know, you then, then you basically schedule your time, uh, a greater length of time some other night. Um, the, the, the questions of who do you get to watch your kids uh, is an issue. I have a whole chapter on that. Um, so basically, whatever the obstacles are, I've covered them. And so it's just a matter of it's just a matter of deciding: are we going to do it or aren't we? And um, do we are we going to enjoy our time together? And I deal with how to enjoy your time with somebody you don't like as a uh, as one of the obstacles. Hopefully, you guys like each other a whole lot. So. Spending the time together shouldn't be that much of a challenge. <laughs> yeah. So 
you know, that, I think that, uh, you know, I don't speak for you, but it seems like that is common for people to maybe start there. And then it kind of moves into, especially, I mean, it's not, pastors aren't, um, you know, it's, it's available for pastors too to begin to have conversations with somebody else, right? And that moves into uh, them spending more time with that person and it moves into even, uh, unfortunately, having an affair at some point. So what would you say might be some boundaries that we can put in place uh, within our marriage, within our ministries to help us avoid that from even beginning? Yeah, I gave up years ago. um, uh, I was always on the docket for the graduating class of the Bethel Seminary in St. Paul. And my talk was how to avoid an affair as a as a minister, as a pastor, Um, because an affair will destroy your entire career, everything you have tried to do, everything you have worked for um, will go down the drain. You'll ruin your life. And affairs take place usually by mistake. What I mean by that is that you happen to get into a relationship with somebody that's making a love, love, enough love bank deposits to create romantic love. Anybody can do it. If, an, if, if anybody meets your emotional needs for the things that are important to you, um, you're going to breach the romantic love threshold. And you're going to be in love with that person. And when you be when you're in love with somebody, um, I say that you enter the fog. Mm-hmm. You no longer are able to see things for what they are. I've had pastors tell me that it was God's will that they had this affair because God would not. God is a God of love, and they love this other woman. And so it must be God's will. This is the kind of thing that can happen to people when they are in love with somebody. They can come up with all kinds of ridiculous reasons why that's a good idea. So I tell this graduating group, I say, don't counsel a woman. And if you're a woman, don't counsel a man. Um, Counsel same sex. Uh, There are many, many churches all over the United States, big churches, mega churches. We have one in the Twin Cities where the pastor of that church, it's about 25,000 people that attend, um, has followed that rule from the beginning based on my advice. And um, all of the people in this church, all of the counseling that's done in this church is same-sex counseling. So the basic idea that uh, that's one thing to re- avoid, uh, because a lot of counts, a lot of pastors fall in love with their clients from their their parishioners that come in for counsel. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go out with a person for lunch that is of the opposite sex, bring your wife with you. Um, basically, do not develop a friendship with somebody of the opposite sex. Why? Because a friendship is a relationship where you are 
trying to make the person happy. You support that person. You encourage that person. You you tell the person, you want the person to share their, their deepest feelings. It's all intimate conversation. So a lot of people think, oh, Dr. Harley, you're just being, you're just not with it. You're just not modern. I mean, we all have relationships with the opposite sex. Well, the employees that I have in my in my uh, company are women. I've I, I hire women, uh, but they're not my friends. They are my employees. Now they think of me as a nice guy. I'm easy to get along with, but we don't have dinner together. And we don't go camping together. They're basically, um, it's an arm's length relationship. And Joyce is the same way. So that's my advice to, to anybody in ministry. I am so aware of how many ministries have been completely destroyed. From the time I was 21, the pastor of my church lost his job, not because he had an affair, but because his wife had an affair. And he never went back into ministry again. So it applies to the wives of pastors as well as the pastor himself. Yeah, unfortunately, it's common. Um, and so on the flip side, maybe um, I want to talk to those that maybe uh, are single. Uh, a lot of our listeners are uh, those rising leaders. They're kind of up and coming first ministry roles. Uh, coming into um, you know, this this new life, what advice would you say? Some of those boundaries, those things, or or interacting as a single person in ministry. I mean, you were, you know, we're interacting with people. We're in the people business, right? So, what would be some of those tips that you'd have for someone who who is single? It's interesting to be in ministry and to be single. Um, Of course, my attitude is get married, <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, because as a single pastor will say of a church, if you're a single pastor of a church, I mean, how are you going to handle dating? You know, what are you going to do about dating? And um, all I can say is that I would advise pastors not to date their parishioners. Um. It's, it's, it's an interesting issue from a perspective of, of, of just, I'm in a profession where um, I can lose my license if I have an affair with one of my clients. Uh, you don't have such a rule for pastors, but it should be. You should have that rule. Basically, a pastor should not have a romantic relationship with any of their parishioners. Um, the same thing is true with youth pastors. Youth pastors should not date anybody in the youth group. Um, and um, that should be a hard and fast rule because of all the problem, all the trouble you get into. But um, uh, if, you're, if, if you're a single pastor, your dating should be with somebody outside of your church. That's my recommendation. That's great. So... Want to jump back into, uh, you know, maybe there's been that affair or there's some a breach of the trust. And someone's crossed the lines a little bit. Um, you know, 
that love bank has been depleted by their spouse, but maybe it's been filled up by somebody else. What would be some of those first steps to reconnecting, rebuilding that trust, rebuilding that relationship? Basically, um, the path that I recommend for what I call surviving an affair is described in the books that I have surviving an affair. And um, there are three parts to it. Um, initially, um, the process of recovery begins with exposure. Everybody should know about the affair. And this is particularly hard on pastors. If the pastor has had an affair, how do you let everybody know about it? And isn't that going to ruin his career? And the answer is yes, it might ruin his career, but everybody should know about it anyway. And um, remarkably, there are some churches out there where they have accepted the fact that their pastor had an affair and he's still there. Um, but if you're not a pastor, if you're not in ministry, um, the person might lose their job. Uh, maybe it maybe it could draw a lawsuit. And my argument is that it's too important. Exposure is too important. People should know that you had an affair. Family should know. Friends should know. Why? Be, for the support of the betrayed spouse. The support of the betrayed spouse and to hold them accountable. I think accountability is very important in life. I'm a big believer in honesty and openness. I'm a big believer in letting people know what my deepest and darkest secrets are all about because that holds me accountable. I am hold accountable. I am a very good person when somebody follows me around with a camera. Um, when, when I can't get away with anything, I am not tempted to get away with anything. And so I believe exposure is good. Extraordinary precautions goes along with that, making sure that nothing like this could ever happen again. And uh, in the book, Surviving an Affair, I have a checklist of all the extraordinary precautions that need to be followed. The, the second part is transparency. And that is that in marriage, everything you do should be known to your spouse. There should be no secrets. And along with honesty and openness should go what I call the policy of of, of, uh, of uh, the policy, the policy of of enthusiastic agreement where what you do is agreed upon before you do it. So when you think about honesty and openness and coming to an agreement before you do it, that is total transparency. And uh, the two work well together because if, if everything is agreed upon before you do it, you're more likely to be honest if you're more likely to be honest, you're more likely to talk about things before you do them. The third part is to create a romantic relationship in your relation in your marriage. So the third part is coming together to have a very, very successful marriage. Now you think to yourself, can a person have a successful marriage after an affair? And my argument has always been that it's got to be better than it's ever been. And it can be. If your marriage is better than it's ever been, you will regain the trust that you once had for your spouse. 
If you have transparency in your marriage, you will regain the trust you had in your spouse. If there are extraordinary precautions to make sure that your spouse never gets into the same situation again, you will regain the trust for your spouse. But it comes at the end of the program. A lot of times people say, I want you to trust me now. I, I know that I made a terrible mistake, but I don't, I don't want you to not trust me. I want you to trust me. I don't want you to have to look at my emails. I don't want you to check the GPS to see where I've been. I want you to trust me. No, no. I, I want people to check up on the unfaithful spouse. Eventually, trust is returned. And uh, that comes last. It's a tough road, but uh, it's one that's worth fighting for, uh, I believe. So uh, any last thoughts for us? Anything you'd like to, to kind of say as we, we wrap up here? Uh, one of the things I talked to you about this morning before the show was that lately I've been, uh, I've been getting a lot of people a lot of, that are coming to me um, that are in ministry uh, where their wives are very needy. Now, the question is, how does that happen? Well, you, ha you have this guy that has this great empathy and the great understanding and a woman who has a personality where she just needs a lot of attention tends to gravitate to people like that, okay? So now he's married and they have three children and uh, he's in business. And, and, and she, needs, she seems to need every minute of his time. And no matter what he does to try to persuade her that he cares about her, she's not sure he really does because he's not giving her the kind of attention that he used to give her, okay? That is a type of problem that people in ministry tend to get because they're attractive to people who need a lot of attention. So what do I do with that kind of a thing? What I do is I try to find the middle ground. First of all, I don't want the guy to tell me that she needs therapy so that she doesn't need so much, okay? That, that is off the table. What I tell him is that she married you because you have a skill set that is very important to her. You do give her the impression that she is the only person in the room. And you did that while you were marrying her, while you were dating her, and she fell in love with you because of it. You're going to have to continue doing that the rest of your life. And I, I want you to follow the policy of, of undivided attention, perhaps more than the average. Maybe she needs 25 hours a week of undivided attention. Um, and so you married somebody that has this need. Don't tell me that she needs therapy. I want you to learn how to meet that woman's need that she has had when you were dating her through the rest of your life. So it's a combination of me working with her to try to not be so critical of him, which she finds herself very resentful about the fact that he's ignoring her more than uh, she would like, but then getting him to focus more attention on her. So I've tried to find that middle ground. Common problem in ministry, actually. I bet. 
I bet. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, our, we're coming up on 20 years of marriage and uh, this book, His Needs, Her Needs, and especially uh, His Needs, Her Needs for Parents have both been uh, so important in our marriage over the last 20 years. So we just want to say thank you so much for your resources that you've provided. Um, I want to encourage everybody to go to the website anywhere else that you'd suggest uh, for them that, that want to dive in a little bit more? Yeah, basically, marriagebuilders.com has uh, a lot of my articles and um, Q&A columns that I've had in the past. And um, um, it, it the website itself has solved so many people's problems from over the world, all over the world. Doesn't cost a dime. You can you can download anything. All the questionnaires are free of charge. So I make it I make it easy for people to figure out what it takes to solve their marital problems. Well, I appreciate that. That's a great resource. I want to encourage all of you guys to d- jump in there and take advantage of those. And I want to suggest a couple other episodes. First of all, go to our YouTube channel, but also a couple episodes for you. Episode sixty-eight, balancing family and ministry, uh, episode 24, 20, sorry, 26 is save your marriage and episode 17, successfully having tough conversations. I want to suggest those episodes to you. I want to say thank you for watching on YouTube. Thank you for listening on the podcast and I hope to see you guys soon on our next episode. I hope you enjoyed listening in on our coaching call. Again, that's just a portion of what we do during our coaching calls. We have guest speakers where you get to interact in real time, ask real questions about your ministry context. We get to interact as a group to help each other in our ministries and also break up into groups where you get to have personal connection with a smaller group where you get to encouragement and uh, do life together. I want to encourage you to take a look at it. Go to renewedleadership.org slash network to get more information and to join a group. Well, We're going to be bringing you more episodes, so take a look wherever you're subscribed for the podcast. I can't wait to bring you another episode here soon.